0: You're listening to Robert
1: Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Anatole. Hello. How are you doing?
2: Oh, well, apart from the,
0: the general situation, I could be worse.
1: Apart from the impending end of the world, things are fine? Mm-hmm. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a non-Zero podcast. You're Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Author of a number of books, including The Baltic Revolutions, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and the Path to Independence. And most relevantly, for purposes of today's conversation, Ukraine and Russia, a fraternal rivalry. We're going to talk about the Ukraine situation, uh, which seems to be getting uh, more alarming almost by the hour. So today is the day that, first of all, I think is the last day of voting uh, for the referendums in the four oblasts or provinces. Uh, it's widely expected that this will be followed by Russia's annexation of some or all of them, which will uh, vastly complicate the prospects for your near-term peace, I think, in your view and many others. And then the other thing that happened this morning, or I woke up to find it this morning, was the sabotage of not one, but both Nord Stream gas pipelines coming out of Russia. Now, why, why don't we talk a little about that first? Because it's, it's breaking In the West, a lot of fingers are pointing at Russia. I don't quite get why Russia would do this. I mean, unless it's some kind of fancy false flag attack, because if they just want to stop the gas, there's a much easier way to do that, right? Because the gas comes from Russia to Europe, right? Mm. So, what's your take?
0: Uh, Look, I I mean, I I just don't know. Um, There is obviously an argument that Russia has done this by way of an excuse you know, not to Resume gas supplies. Remember that, you know, they, they've been using this excuse that they uh, the interruption of supplies was due to uh, repairs to the pipeline. So it is possible that they've made this up. Um, Why you
2: know,
1: would they not want to just admit that they're doing it uh, on purpose for tactical purposes After and say, after all, we're subject to sanctions. We're at war. This is what we're doing. We're cutting it off.
0: But look, I, I know, I mean, that's that's what I would have thought. But, you know, um, Putin does have a certain record of, you, you know, possibly going back to his secret service background of, of, you know, seeking plausible deniability that, in fact, you know, is not very plausible. I mean, I suppose the the Russians, of course, are claiming that Ukraine or Western intelligence services did it in order to make sure that Russian... Gas supplies cannot be resumed, um, so that to 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 help discourage any possibility of Germany, in particular, uh, in the winter seeking a um, a peace agreement with Russia uh, in return for a resumption of of supplies. I don't find that very plausible, but I suppose it's a possibility. I the the answer is we just don't know.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I uh, a related thing I've never gotten is. Why uh Russia seems so happy about the prospect of not providing the gas, because after all it gets money in exchange for the gas, right? I mean, I mean it, it hurts both parties for them to shut off the gas, right?
0: Well, yeah, but I don't think Russia's happy with this at all. Um but it is, you know, one of the very few uh means of pressure on the West that Russia has left. Um
2: yeah.
0: and uh you know, since since West, including the Europeans, are you know trying to bring maximum economic pressure to bear on Russia. Um, this is you know the only way that Russia can retaliate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I can imagine a false flag rationale. if Putin is is going to uh, use this to, going to blame America or the West and use it to you know stir up uh, pro war sentiment in Russia or something. Conceivably, I don't know. It's a. Does it seem to you like this is a, a very worrisome thing in its own right? Is this is could this Contribute to a spiraling of things out of control.
0: Well, I mean, n- not if the if the Russians did uh, well. I mean, the, the the thing is, what I think is 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 very obvious uh, is that um, uh, in, in the months to come, Russia will stand on the defensive on the ground militarily you know, will seek to defend what it has while it trains more troops. I think that will be the case whether or not they move straight to annexation on Friday. Um, While, you know, trying to put pressure on, on, on Ukraine by bombarding Ukrainian infrastructure, you know, that has already begun and threatening, you know, to go after the Ukrainian government and political leadership as well. Well, you know, but but there the escalation is um, is already in place, and of course you know the, it must be noted that that you know Ukraine um, has been sending uh, people in to assassinate pro-Russian officials in eastern Ukraine, um,
1: some territory that, we, that Russia occupies already.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, something that of course Russia regards as terrorism and so the russians would i think feel perfectly you know justified by now in uh, in attempting to go after the political leadership of of ukraine but that would clearly mark a serious escalation
1: okay now on on the referendums um is it is it clear that russia will take the outcomes of the referendums and it's of course presumed that the 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 results as presented as officially ta- uh, tabulated will be in favor of separation from ukraine i gather in some of the oblasts maybe there's both a vote about independence and a vote for about joining russia right whereas in in two of them the independence uh, issue is thought of from russia's point of view as a settled matter right in the case of donetsk yeah. and luhansk in the other two um in the south, there, there's, I, I gather, separate votes on independence on joining Russia. In any event, the presumption is that uh, the, the the officially tabulated results will be relieving Ukraine. Uh, has it been explicit whether Russia is going to take this as, as applying to the entire oblast? Even though in some cases much of the oblast uh, was not even part of the referendum because it's not occupied by Russia. Do we know?
0: Well, we don't. I mean, we, we, what we know is that Russia recognized uh, back in February um, the independence of the two Donbass oblasts on mm-hmm. the whole territory uh, of those um, provinces, even though at that stage Russia occupied less than half of them and still doesn't occupy the whole of, of Donetsk. So we don't know exactly what Russia will do. We're not even absolutely sure yet, um, that, uh, although it seems probable. Uh, that the Russian government will move straight to annexation because, uh, you know, in um, the Donbass Republic's declared independence in 2014, uh, but Russia did not recognize this independence until this February, on the, uh, the eve of war, and in the meantime, used those declarations as bargaining counters um, in diplomatic negotiations about the terms on which the Donbass would return to Ukraine. So I suppose there is a possibility, though only a small one, that Russia may do this again, because if, um, if if Russia does move, and we'll know on Friday, I think, when Putin is due to address Parliament, if he calls for immediate annexation, Parliament um, then obviously obeys and annexes, then that uh, he really has burnt his his bridges as far as negotiations are concerned, because there's simply no way that the the Ukrainians and the West can negotiate, you know, on the basis of agreeing, you know, to to Russian annexation of these lands. Um, And at the same time, of course, if Russia has formally annexed them, uh, it would be extremely difficult um, for not just Putin, but any successor government to give them up again, unless, of course, the Ukrainians have reconquered them already. Mm -hmm. So it would be, uh, I mean, a colossal blow to whatever, you know, slim hopes of peace remain.
1: Yeah. And if we presume that the results are taken to apply to the entire extent of the oblast, it kind of commits Putin as a political matter to keep fighting uh, until, until all of those, all that territory is actually acquired, right? I mean, leave aside peace negotiations. I mean, uh, leave aside uh, whether whether you you know, and and I think you're probably right. You, you can't imagine those once a lot of annexation has happened. Um, but but it will be politically unpalatable for Putin to to even just kind of let the war simmer, right? I, I mean, am I wrong? I, I maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it. But it it just it commits him to a whole lot politically, right? If he says, okay, these four oblasts are now are now part of Russia.
0: Well well it does indeed. But of course, uh, Putin would not be doing this if he hadn't already given up on on the hope uh, that um Ukraine or the West would you know would offer what Russia would you know could see as a reasonable compromise peace. Because um you know, in recent months the Biden administration has declared over and over again that uh, negotiations are purely a matter for the Ukrainians, and America has no say, and the Ukrainians have said, um, you know, increasingly that uh, the only terms that we will consider are the complete, you know, withdrawal of Russia from all the territories it's held since 2014, including Crimea. Well, no Russian government will agree to that. So, as far as I can see, the Russian uh, analysis for the moment is um, there's, there's there's nothing to negotiate, and so I suppose I mean Putin is is hoping um, to uh, you know to, to shift the whole Russian agenda and strategy, um, which has already of course changed and been scaled down greatly since February, um, but to shift it just to the mode of of hanging on to what Russia now has.
1: Shifting it to that, from what? What would you have? What would you have imagined his his end game was a few weeks ago? Well, I
0: mean, a few weeks ago, it still seemed. Um, but you know, let, let's see what happens on on Friday. I mean, perhaps he will repeat, you know, his action in um, in, in twenty fourteen and wait. Uh, but. Um, you know, the war started, of course, with with clearly with Russia uh, aiming to overthrow the government in in uh, Kiev, capture Kiev, mm-hmm. replace it with a, uh, either force it to submit to Russia or replace it with a Russian, you know, puppet government, a client government. That failed completely. Um, it was, of course, defeated. Uh, Russia did not deploy nearly enough troops for the purpose. So then, the second stage was, you know, Russia withdrew from around Kiev and concentrated just on, on trying to capture um, Eastern uh, Ukraine, and then only very partially succeeded at that. Um, so now it seems, uh, after this, but uh, until a few weeks ago, that was the, you know, the, the Russian agenda um, to capture the whole of the Donbass. And I was told in Moscow, for what it's worth, not, not by senior government officials, but by you know, people who have had those connections with government. That if Russia had had managed to capture the whole of the Donbass, then Putin would have offered a, mm-hmm. a ceasefire mm-hmm. and peace negotiations. That's what course, I thought. They they failed, you know, Even at that, now of course, you know, Ukraine has has launched this successful counteroffensive in Kharkov, and as far as I can see, the Russian um, plan is now basically to dig in, uh, recruit more troops, but of course they will take months to train and equip, Um, rely on, you know, artillery, and basically let the Ukrainians, as Russia hopes, batter themselves to pieces, attacking Russian positions, you know, losing heavy casualties in the process, Mm -hmm. Um, while Russia, for its part, you know, destroys Ukrainian infrastructure, and um well, it depends on whether Russia annexes or not. If Russia doesn't annex, then you know, hope for peace negotiations at some stage, maybe come the spring. Uh if Russia does annex, then peace negotiations as such are out of the question. Um, but maybe um, sooner or later there will be a ceasefire. Uh I, I have a feeling that what we may be heading towards ultimately is something like. You know, the situation that's existed in in Kashmir for 75 years now between India and Pakistan, there's never been a peace agreement on the fate of the province, uh, but there have been a series of ceasefires um, lasting for years, but uh, but of course, constantly interrupted by cross-border firing, terrorist attacks, um, and intermittent big wars. That seems to me the most probable scenario we're heading towards
1: so if there is annexation that's what you imagine as the in a way i guess at that point the the, the positive outcome compared to the alternatives right uh, because uh, because alternatives include ongoing escalation things spiral out of control you get either a regional war or a nuclear exchange um you're saying peace talks per se are out of the question if there's been annexation so the kind of happy outcome is things just settle in more or less where they are, and the fighting is, cools to a simmer and is maybe kind of intermittent?
0: Well, yes. I mean, I wouldn't call it a happy option, but it's it's <coughs> that would be better, obviously, than you know escalation towards nuclear annihilation. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. So um, let's. Uh I want to get back to to the issue of uh, annexation and 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 what slim prospects may remain for uh, a negotiated solution, if there's not annexation. But why don't we talk a little about Putin's domestic political situation, which of course, is relevant to that. relevant to the question of whether uh, he annexes. Um, what is your take? I just saw right before we started taping that you've re- written a piece in The Guardian called, if Putin falls but i haven't read it so you can uh, explain it to me as you're explaining to other people for starters uh i mean it sounds like you're getting into the question of what 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 would follow him on the stage first let's talk about how how likely anything is to follow him how precarious if at all do you think his situation is right now politically
0: well i think it is clearly weakening and i think another defeat on the scale of Uh, what has happened in (coughs) Kharkov would lead a lot of people within the establishment uh, to start thinking it was time for him to go. Um, Because, of course, you know, I mean, these people are anxious to protect their own wealth, their own positions. And if enough of them, you know, went to Putin and said, you know, deepest respect, it's time to go, of course, it would be... In some ways, very like the deal, you know, when Yeltsin stepped down and handed over to Putin, which is to say that the you know the successor would guarantee Putin's wealth and his family mm-hmm. position, you know, immunity from prosecution, and any other top people who were forced, uh, you know, to, to leave as well, like the defense minister, you know, they would also be protected. Um, this at least my view is that that it's very unlikely that we will see you know a revolution on the streets like Iran in 1978 79 um, you, you know we might not actually see it as a coup at all i mean because putin would appear to step down of his own volition remember that he has to stand for re-election in march 2024 so he could say very like yeltsin um I've, I've decided he, he might even like Yeltsin give a qualified you know apology, um, you know I've decided not to run again, and as interim president I appoint so um, and so, uh, and so there would be a there would be an agreed transition. Now the the advantage from the point of view of the Russian establishment would be that a newcomer could avoid depending on who he was, of course, but at least some of the blame for everything that's gone wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, if the West wants, you know, th- this to lead to an end to the war, well, the West would have to, you know, make an offer of of peace talks that Russia, you know, could accept as a basis. Um, this is after
1: after there's a successor you're talking about.
0: Well, yeah, because no Russian government can surrender Crimea even now. It's it's right. just non starter start and that's not going to happen. But of course, this is this is where the question of annexation becomes so crucial, because if um, if, it, if in the meantime Russia has annexed these territories, then it's not clear that there will be anything to talk about with a with a successor government, at which point uh, the, you know the, the successor to Putin might well you know, blame Putin for everything that's gone wrong, but say to the Ru- the, the Russian people, but, uh, you know, given that the West has now taken sides completely against us, and give, given that you know they are not prepared to offer a compromised peace, we have no choice but to double down and go on to the end." You know, mm-hmm. so wider conscription,
2: you know, mm-hmm. people into the military.
1: So it sounds like you're seeing uh, the pressure that could lead to lead him to exit the stage as coming from kind of the nationalist hawks. Of course, the other side of the political pressure on him now would seem to be people who oppose the war. I, I haven't seen signs of kind of massive demonstrations. I mean, Dagestan looks a little unruly, but that's as far away, you know, as you can get from him. Um, and it's, it's not a huge place and so on. Uh, so is your take that he he doesn't. I mean, of course, there are rampant hopes in the West that that's what he has to worry about, right? The the rebellious liberals, um, and, and so finally we get a government to our liking. It sounds like you don't think. I mean, that's probably part of the equation if people are deciding whether to get rid of him, because I'm sure they, they they'd like uh, for the whole country to calm down. But you, you know, it doesn't sound like that's where you see the big pressures coming from. <laughs>
0: Look, there is pressure from the streets. Obviously, there is great pressure from, you know, these scenes of mass evasion of service and people fleeing the country. Um, there is a pressure from the worsening economic crisis. But, um, I, 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 I mean, all, all of this is, is, is worsening Putin's position. Um, I think it would have to get a lot worse to force him to step down um but he may you know he as i say he may decide to step down you know more or less of his own volition
1: i mean what that doesn't what, sound like him i mean i'm not an expert it just doesn't a graceful exit doesn't he seems uh, somebody holds on to things pretty tenaciously am i Yeah, i mean i
0: i i, I agree but then again you know uh, some failures are simply undeniable and um you know, so far, the, the, the Russian war has overwhelmingly failed, and he is personally responsible for it. I mean, as to who will, you know, what the character of the, you know, of the government that succeeds him, uh, I mean, that will depend, as I say, on, you know, whether Russia annexes on Friday. But um, if it doesn't, I mean, if there's still a, a chance of negotiation, it will also depend on us. Um, you know, on, on whether the West, and it would have to be the United States, you know, offers peace terms. Because if they do, then uh, it would be easier for a successor to Putin to accept, you know, drastically scaled down gains. Um, mm-hmm. Because he would have been the man who launched this disastrous war. Um, but of course, we have to be prepared to offer something that Russia can accept
1: ok, so um, so we will know we, you, you think by friday, uh, if if he plans to annex, and uh, I mean, I suppose in your dream world, in between now and then the West would signal that it that it is willing to talk uh, about negotiations, but you you don't because that could well forestall an annexation decision, I would think. but you don't mm-hmm. imagine that uh, happening.
0: The the Biden administration has boxed itself in uh, by declaring that negotiations are purely a matter for the Ukrainians and uh, the U.S. has no say, which is a ridiculous position given that the U.S. is, you know, arming the Ukrainians, funding the Ukrainians, and of course running very great risks for the sake of the Ukrainians. So to suggest that America has no say in the negotiating process is, is an abdication of responsibility to the American people, but that's what... But that is the unanimous line at the moment by the administration, and meanwhile, you know the Ukrainian government, which uh, you know soon after the war began, made a very reasonable set of, of uh, peace proposals. But in, uh, of course, I mean, since then there have been Russian atrocities. There is the extra bitterness created by war, and there have been Ukrainian successes. So in recent weeks, you've you've had more and more people, including Zelensky, saying that you you know, the only terms of peace that Ukraine will accept is the complete reconquest of all the lost territories, including Crimea, which basically excludes any possibility of peace. So, I mean, in an ideal world, yes. I mean, this is the moment for the West to come out with a, you know, with a really strong peace initiative. But I I'm, I, I fear it will not happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, in Putin's mobilization speech, he alluded to the the kind of uh, tentative discussions in March that might have led to peace, and I think you you find in that a ray of hope. It suggests that you know maybe that was a signal on his part uh, that he's willing to talk about that. He also said that those those talks were basically sabotaged by I think uh, you know the U.S. and and Britain, and of course that's been something we've heard for some time people have said boris uh, uh, Boris Johnson went there with a message in the spring and and kind of uh and, and the 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 intent of putting an end to any talk of negotiations um do you have a do you have a take on that do you think do you think Putin is just uh, this is kind of propaganda or do you think there's reason to believe the West has actually the Western powers have been pressuring Ukraine not to talk about peace?
0: Well, I mean, it's certain that, that um, Johnson opposed any peace deal. Uh, whether that was also the view of the U.S. government, um, uh, I, I don't know. What I think one can say is that given the domestic pressure that Zelensky was under from his own hardliners, uh, you know, to, to, to get the Ukrainian government actually to press ahead with peace, uh, would have taken full support from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that he didn't have that. So um, maybe, you know, the U.S. blocked it simply by not doing anything. The Ukrainians say, of course, and, and this, by the way, is not mutually exclusive. This could also be, both of these things could be true, um, that uh, the uh, the Russian atrocities around Bucha that were discovered when Russia withdrew from that territory were what Led the Ukrainians to drop their their peace proposals, mm-hmm. um, and there, there may be, you know, an element of truth in that as well.
1: Yeah, um, I, guess I have I have one question about the uh, one more question about the referenda. Um, it's assumed in the West that it, it will it will take crooked uh, vote counting to uh for for, for the uh, you know for independence and or joining russia to to win the to carry the day, um, do we know that I, I mean one one thing that I gather has happened is that you know the, the there's been a lot of exodus from a lot of these places, and the people have tended to leave i assume it tended to be the pro ukraine people right Now I have no idea what the mixture was of allegiances. And I know it's shifted over over time, but uh, what do do we have a sense for what the actual sentiment in these various places is right now?
0: Not really. It's it, it's very difficult because um, you know, investigating under circumstances of occupations is, is very difficult indeed. Um, and uh, I mean, all we know is that before the war, there was considerable pro-Russian. Sentiment in these areas, but A, as you say, um, you know, now most of the pro-Ukrainian population may well have fled, but oh, on the other hand, of course, uh, one can imagine that the local people, having been you know bombarded and in some cases had their cities destroyed by Russia, um, are not feeling you know, even the ones who remain are not feeling very pro-Russian. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I mean, I think. Out is that in in these circumstances you cannot possibly have a free and fair referendum,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: so the the results, whatever may be the real sentiments of the majority of the people, the results will lack all credibility and legitimacy. That, by the way, was not it was not true of the referendum in Crimea back in 2014, where you know a large number of independent witnesses. Um, said that um to, to judge by their observations and interviews, uh the result of the referendum, you know, which was to join Russia, was actually correct. It did reflect the will of a majority of the people. Um but then of course, you know, that that was in a time of peace. Uh the, the Russian takeover had been completely uh, peaceful, there were no refugees, so you know, it, it was a quite different situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um the, on the on the mobilization, do you have a sense for what the chances are of it uh, succeeding from Russia's point of view in the long run? I mean, as you say, it's not going to work any miracles over the next few months. These people need to be trained, and so on. The whole mobilization machinery needs to be built. And and uh, but uh, can you imagine Russia being kind of in the driver's seat in the spring militarily? And if so what do you think their, their goals would become uh, militarily? I, I Look,
0: I could be wrong. I mean, you know, the, the, the course of this war has surprised everybody, you know, Western analysts, obviously the Russians themselves. I find it difficult to believe that, you know, with um, poorly trained, quite likely poorly equipped, and quite likely discontented, conscript troops, Russia will be able to resume the offensive Mm -hmm. on a large scale. I mean, I suppose if, you know, if the Ukrainians attack and attack and lose terrible casualties in the process, then, you know, perhaps Russia would counterattack. Um, But uh, it seems to me that, you know, with these not well-trained, poor-quality troops, uh, the strategy of, of Russia um, will will probably be to to dig to stand on the defensive militarily, you know to dig in, to rely on artillery above all to repel Ukrainian attacks,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: then basically to, to to try to hold on. And of course, if you're uh, repelling an attack, you don't need troops who are as well trained or as motivated as you do when they're you know, trying to attack and capture positions. So that is my my sense of how um, the, the the near future will look. But as I say, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: as I, I, I could be wrong.
1: Now, in that scenario, eventually Ukraine just virtually runs out of people, right? The uh, they're taking. I don't. I, I don't. Maybe you have a good sense of the casualty levels. I, I, I haven't seen any numbers I, I trust on either side, really. But but I think they're taking pretty considerable casualties eventually, I mean, they'll, if, mo, if Putin can sustain mobilization politically, then Ukraine runs out of troops before Russia does, right? If it's just a war of attrition. Um, and I would think that would be all the more reason that you see more and more political pressure on the Biden administration to provide more and more sophisticated weapons, right? The Ukrainians are going to say, hey, we stopped them. They've still got a lot of our territory. Do you or do you not want to teach them a lesson about transborder aggression? It's within your power to give us X, Y, and Z. I don't know exactly what the weapon systems are. I assume, first of all, there are these long-range missiles that can be launched from the same launchers that do these HIMARS uh, missiles they're launching now. Uh, More advanced battle tanks, uh, fighter jets. I mean, don't you see a possibility of that kind of escalation if Russia, as you say, manages to dig in and persevere?
0: Yes, I, I think that is a very, you know, a, a very great risk. Um, and, uh, you know, if um, if Russia can hang on, then I think you will get an eventual ceasefire. But if Russia looks as if it's going to be completely defeated, you know, by new um, Western weaponry, then, of course, there is the risk of uh, a drastic escalation. Um I mean, I I don't think Russia would move immediately to the use of nuclear weapons, but I can imagine, you know, a warning shot, um, a practice shot Um, and, um, yeah, uh, or, or, you know, um, extend the bombardment of Ukrainian territory into Poland. I mean, I think Russia would be extremely unwilling to do either of those things, um, a resort to nuclear weapons because it would it would just destroy Russia's reputation um, in the world. It would bring tremendous condemnation um, and um, escalating the war by attacking, you know, NATO supply lines and bases in Poland uh, would um, point straight towards the U.S. imposition of a no-fly zone and sending in, mm-hmm. you know, U.S. aircraft. Now, at that point, We both put the Russian army in, Ukraine in a much worse position. We also take a huge leap towards direct war between America and Russia, Mm -hmm. um, with the possibility of this turning into a nuclear exchange and destroying both countries.
1: Well, I would think direct war would be a a possible consequence of the use of even a single tactical nuclear weapon as well, leave aside bombing Poland. I mean, If they even launched a nuke at Snake Island for demonstration purposes, I would think they've Significantly escalated the chances of a wider war don 't you think there'd be huge pressure on biden uh, to to get involved in a whole new way
0: yeah, the would um the Russians could reckon that the the nerve of the Europeans will crack, uh, especially if we have a a hard winter in Europe, but so far the Europeans have um stuck very much to the American line at least in public mm-hmm. so um yeah i mean it would be a it would be a colossal gamble on russia's part which is why i don't think they would that they would do this unless uh, they thought that they were already losing and they had no you know no option but um escalate or surrender
1: mm-hmm. and if they don't do either of those things bomb outside of you know attack outside of ukraine or use a nuke then then the pressure on Biden to escalate would be, uh, as we said, the, the sheer fact of the, their persistence on Ukrainian territory. Plus, I would think this business of them attacking Ukrainian infrastructure more and more, and even possibly political targets, which I think is not at all improbable, as you suggest, right? I mean, that, that'll that put a lot of pressure on, on Biden.
0: Yes, undoubtedly it will. Um, on the other hand, of course, we do have to see how China reacts to all this. Because, um, you know, China has come in for so much criticism here in America, but actually it seems to me China has, has behaved with enormous restraint, um, partly because they fear Western, especially European sanctions, uh, but also because, after all, they weren't asked about this war. They deeply disapprove of uh, you know, separatism and and changing borders by force. Um, And also, um, you know, if Russia had won a quick, and overwhelming victory, then, you know, Russia would have gained a measure of grudging respect Mm. in many parts of the world, including China. Um, But of course, the Chinese don't respect failure. And, you know, and Russia has experienced failure. But Mm. I think... um, All the same, especially after Biden's latest remarks about Taiwan, if the Chinese saw Russia as heading towards complete defeat at the hands of the West, and possibly that in turn leading to a collapse of the Russian state, then the pressure on the Chinese government to send vastly increased aid to Russia would, I think, become overwhelming. Because otherwise, China would find itself really very seriously isolated on the world stage. And it would also give up a large part of its energy security. um, And there would be complicated consequences as far as the um, Belt and Road are concerned. Uh, So I'm sure that China doesn't want to get more closely involved, but they may feel they have no choice.
1: Well, they're uniquely positioned to exert real leverage on Russia, right?
0: Yes, but, I mean, uh, but once again, I mean, leverage to do what? Um, there's no point in in putting pressure on Russia, you know, to offer a peace deal uh, to the West, only for the West to either throw it back in their faces or, you know, refer it to the Ukrainians.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I wonder, what do you think the Biden administration hopes is going to happen? What, what what's, what's their... Uh their idea of the happy outcome. And in a way, my question is, what has it ever been? Because it seems to me, if you assume, and none of us were assuming this, but if you assume the initial Russian invasion fails, uh, and of course, most of us weren't assuming quite the ambition it had. In other words, a real regime change operation that, that approaches Kiev and so on. But once that had failed, I guess, it, it seems to me that something like where we are became almost inevitable in a way. Does that, you know, because then Russia's going to really, really, once that's failed, it's really going to want to take all the territory it can. It has appreciable force, no matter how much it screws up. Biden is committed to not letting it do that. So we're going to kind of provide the Ukrainians with more, whatever kind of weapons it takes and escalate the weapons provision to keep Russia from making radical progress and And, of course, failure is politically unacceptable to Putin. So he's going to do something dramatic. Turns out it's partial mobilization, along with increasingly hitting infrastructure targets. I mean, it just seems to me in retrospect, uh, it's been kind of inevitable that we'd be in a mess. and I, I don't I don't know now what what Biden sees as the as the welcome end game, the welcome outcome. And I don't know what they ever did in a way, Uh, you know, ever since they were really not going very far in negotiations, even before the invasion. They just didn't seem up for that. And I I wonder what 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 preferable outcome did they envision? I'm still kind of confused. Do you know what what they what they're hoping for at this point?
0: Not really. I mean, you know, the Biden administration since first coming to power has, you know, has, has tried consistently to kick the Russian problem down the road without actually resolving anything. Um, because to try to resolve things would take considerable moral courage and would expend a lot of political capital in Washington, and they have never been willing to do that even if they had the vision, you know, to, to, to see an agreement. And I think that that is still the case. I mean, intelligent ones in private recognize that um, for Ukraine to try to get Crimea back would be a... a a really really worrying scenario given likely russian reactions um, but they will not come out with a peace proposal of their own um, and the more they say that this is purely a match for the ukrainians you know the, once again i mean they're painting them you know with every statement from the administration along those lines they're painting themselves further into a corner which is more mm-hmm. difficult to get out from uh, but um you you know the this this has been the the story of every administration since since some um, Clinton in the 1990s. Um, despite you know repeated warnings from Russia experts, ambassadors to Moscow, um, the feeling has been oh you know the Russians can't do anything serious. Let's ignore them. Let's you know make nice noises. Well, now of course nobody's making nice noises, but. Um, and and basically hope they they just go away because in the end they'll have to accept whatever we do, mm-hmm. uh, and um, that you know played a great part in in bringing about this this war.
1: Yeah. What well, what what kind of peace deal do you imagine was doable? Kind of you know weeks and weeks before the war. I mean, as an invasion this massive approaches, you know the 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 context is constantly shifting. Increasingly, the invaders are committed to the invasion, you know, and it's probably going to get harder to call it off. But if you imagine that the Biden administration and the Ukrainians had had begun negotiating in in earnest, say in December, when it became very clear that we had uh, a quite uh, likely invasion on our hands, what deal do you think? Uh, and of course, we're all guessing when we talk about these these things. But what what deal do you imagine? there's a, a pretty good chance you could have gotten with the Russians.
0: Well, obviously, a treaty of neutrality. I mean, Zelensky said, has said this himself, but only, unfortunately, after the beginning of the war. Um, you know, he went to NATO governments and, and asked for a guarantee that, uh, that Ukraine would be admitted to NATO within five years, and they all said no. So Zelensky said, okay, so in that point, why not a treaty of neutrality with, with sufficient international guarantees? Um, but the sad thing was that Zelensky, you know, did not offer that before the war. Well, the reason is he couldn't. He was under too much pressure from from his own hardliners. But the West could have offered it, um, because you know, as as all these people, as Michael McFaul is now saying, oh no, we never really intended to to bring Ukraine into NATO. Well, why not say so? Because if if the West had made a concession like that, I think it would have been very difficult if Russia had got its biggest single demand, then to have launched. The invasion. And then, you know, there were other things. Um, The Russians demanded then, I mean, I think it's still an official demand, though they haven't elaborated it being denazification. Um, Why not say that, you know, in order to make progress towards um, the Western European Union, Ukraine um, had to withdraw the the laws which had been introduced, uh, basically abolishing the Russian language from public life? in Ukraine in the couple of years leading to the war. Now, is that a fair
1: statement of what the laws were? They the... much. Yeah. in intention. Of course,
0: in practice, uh, they would made only very limited progress because, um, you know, the, Ukraine doesn't have the capacity to, to, to implement it. But certainly if you read the laws, the absolutely clear intention, you know, was progressively to, to drive the Russian language from public life in ukraine you mean like on the
1: uh literally public life like in in public proceedings and i mean i know there was this law that in any town even a town full of russian speakers and there are plenty of those towns in ukraine as a technical matter because of some law they passed if you're a shopkeeper and a person walks in the store you're not allowed uh to greet them in russian until they request unless they request that you address them in Russia now, I don't know if this was enforced, but it's on the books, and yeah. and I know there are things like that, and and I think a lot of Americans don't appreciate that there are a lot of native Russian speakers in Ukraine who feel that they were being systematically oppressed under the uh, Ukrainian government. Um, but anyway, go go ahead with uh, what you were saying. Yeah, so,
0: so um, there were those two things, and then um, y- you know, in in the first year of the Biden administration. Um, On Crimea, well, ever since, you know, Russia annexed it in 2014, uh, every Western official I know admitted in private, but only in private, of course Crimea is gone, Ukraine will never get it back. Um, Well, you know, why not have the courage then actually to look for a you know, a solution to this um, with mm-hmm. democratic cover. Tom Graham, you know, former American number two in, in, um, in Moscow, said this, you know, that before the war, the only, the only way out is, is you know, a, a, a reference to democracy, local democracy, mm-hmm. just ask the local people, but under, of course, proper international controls, the United Nations, right. what they want. And there's a perfectly reasonable deal, I think, to be done, a quid pro quo with Moscow. Uh, whereby Moscow recognizes the independence of Kosovo. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have a a UN-supervised deal in a referendum in Kosovo, which, of course, naturally leads to a vote for independence there. But, you know, it's partly our accursed self-righteousness. You know, you said this to... Western diplomats, and they'd say, oh, but there's absolutely no no parallel, no legitimate parallel at all between Crimea and Kosovo. And you'd say, well, why not? And they said, oh, well, it's just completely, completely different. Why is it different? Well, it just is. It's different. You, know, you get the general mm. idea. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: but uh, then you see on the Donbass uh, and the Minsk II uh, agreement of 2015, whereby That Donbass was supposed to return to Ukraine in return for guarantees of full autonomy. Um, That was, in my view, an entirely reasonable deal. You know, it's the kind of thing, uh, well, the U.S. did endorse it, but certainly as a, 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 you know, as a compromise peace agreement, it's the kind of thing that we would have endorsed in, I don't know, uh, we did endorse in the case Mm. of Northern Sri Lanka, we'd endorse in the case of Myanmar, you know, any of these, Mm. we basically did not
1: and if we can drill um, down on that, just one thing. So I gather Minsk II would have been, in a way, uh, you know, leaving aside even whether there was an explicit agreement that Ukraine would never join NATO. Minsk II would have been kind of a backdoor way of ensuring that, right? Because it would have given uh, the, these two provinces effective veto power over major foreign policy initiatives or something, right? So uh, now, now, do you have a, a view on who's responsible for the failure of Minsk II? The Russians say Ukraine just never tried to do it in good faith. I assume Ukraine says the reverse. Do, do you know how exactly Minsk II, which was of course negotiated after the 2014 uh, revolution coup, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, do, you, do you have a sense for how Minsk II fell apart?
0: Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely obvious. The, the, the Ukrainian uh, parliament and government mm-hmm. refused to pass the legislation guaranteeing the Donbass uh, full autonomy permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's abs- entirely obvious. Now, the reason they did it is is w- why they refused to do that is what you've just said, that they thought that, um, you know, an autonomous Donbass within Ukraine would act as a block uh, on Progress towards membership of NATO. But you see, you know, when talking to people in, you know, uh, uh, American officials after the Biden administration came in, you got a recognition that, Crimea would never return to Ukraine. You got a recognition that for the foreseeable future, um, Ukraine would not be a member of NATO uh, because um, this implied war with Russia and because the French and Germans opposed it. Um, You also got people saying, oh, of course, Minsk is dead. But in none of these cases... Where they prepared to come out in public? Was the administration prepared to come out and say, uh, okay, Minsk is dead, what's our alternative? Because they didn't have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recognized that Crimea would never go back, but they weren't prepared to bite the bullet and say, okay, let's make you know, a reasonable deal uh, on Crimea. And even though they knew that um, NATO membership was not a possibility. They weren't prepared, you know, to, to to do a a deal with Russia that would have averted war. So I mean, it was a pretty disgraceful picture, frankly, of uh, you know, of irresponsibility and um, moral cowardice. Uh, and as I, you know, want to write a, a piece about this, saying that um, you know, everybody always makes over and over and over and over again a parallel to nineteen thirty nine. You know, because that implies the other side is absolutely evil and all responsibility for the war is on one side. I I see it much more like 1914. Um, You know, uh, one can well agree, including most Germans by now, that Germany was principally responsible. The outbreak of war in 1914, but that doesn't uh, you know, in, uh, mean you ignore or excuse, for example, the criminal folly of the Russian government in basically giving a blank check to Serbia in mm-hmm. you know, order to pursue its nationalist aims in the Balkans mm. um, with no no effective control. So, you know, um, just 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 because. Uh, obviously, I mean, in the end, it was the decision of the Russian government to invade Ukraine, and it, it was an utterly criminal and irresponsible decision. But you cannot, you know, ignore the fact that the the West and and uh, European countries in America, uh, you know, failed to do a whole set of things that they should have done to try to avert this
1: catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So let's round out what would have been the peace deal that might have worked before the war. Before we jump ahead and ask what uh, how much worse than that any peace deal we could get now be. Uh, so so let's imagine you've got let us say you do both Minsk II and for good measure the explicit guarantee by NATO of no Ukrainian membership. Uh, you agree that in Crimea there will be a an internationally supervised election to determine the will of the people, and the same will happen in Kosovo and and. Russia's not going to like the result of that election, but they'd agree to it. Um, yeah. then the remaining question is the Donbass, the separatist held territory. What 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 would have happened there? And of course, well, that had I been think... a fierce battle line, I think more than a lot of Americans appreciate all along. There was a there was a war going on in a sense before mm-hmm. the invasion, and and uh oh, yeah. and that contributed to it. But but go ahead. Um
0: well, I mean, my sense is that if
1: Russia had got, at
0: least this is what who who can one believe i've been told by russian officials that if they could have you know got agreements on other things um and some sort of commitment or recommitment in principle to the um uh, you know the the, the minsk process uh, that um they would have been willing once again to kick minsk down the road now i can't guarantee that 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 is the case, but it seems plausible that, you know, if they got basically two or three out of their four mm-hmm. key demands.
1: But I mean, does the separatist-held territory remain separatist-held in that scenario? It is not really under the governance of Kyiv? Well,
0: yes, because, I mean, the only way it was ever going to go back, short of Ukraine reconquering it, was on the basis of guaranteed autonomy. Which is
1: Minsk too. Which I would think, if I were in Kiev, I'd prefer that to an ongoing civil war, but that's just me.
0: Well, the stupid thing is, you know, that before the war, I mean, before 2014, even actually more extreme Ukrainian nationalists would say in private, or occasionally even in public, look, for God's sake, let the Donbass, the whole of the Donbass and Crimea go. Because... They are, you know, an albatross around our necks. Um, They are a means of Russian pressure. Uh, They will never agree to the extension of Ukrainian language laws. There's a permanent threat of rebellion. Let them go and we will be much stronger, much more homogeneous and much more able, you know, both to, um, you know, turn the country towards our vision of an ethnic Ukrainian state Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, much more able to move towards the West. Um, I mean, it should be, you know, remembered that, not that we started out by backing this, but, you know, we we have got into the curious position of backing in Ukraine, uh, you know, an ethnic version of Ukrainian nationalism, which everywhere else in the world
1: is something that we say we disapprove of, right? Right. And just to flesh that out... uh... Well, maybe you should flesh it out just a little bit. What, what you mean exactly by that, that, that because I, I think, uh, you know, the way it's reported in, in, in the press in the West is, well, the referendums are a good example that, okay, uh, everyone in these towns actually hates the Russians. They're forcing them to vote and then they're going to lie about the results. It's actually more complicated than that, right? Uh, and, and it's because we're not seeing the complexity that people don't understand the sense in which this is an ethnic conflict, right? I mean, can you can you just elaborate a little on that? Well, and, I mean, and, and by the way, I want to emphasize, I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the results of the referendum will actually be valid. There's so many reasons we've already covered that they won't be. A, mm-hmm. the pro-Ukrainian population was large, has largely left those areas. B, we can't trust the counting of the votes. C, maybe there was compulsion. And D, uh, a lot of the, the provinces are not even part of the referendum. So anyway, that aside, though, uh, uh, why don't you elaborate on what you mean in the sense in which this remains something of an ethnic conflict?
0: Well, I mean, you know, before 2014, it was absolutely clear, you know, tr- visiting the the um, Donbass and Crimea, that there was... Uh, I would say, overwhelming support in Crimea and substantial support in in the Donbass for leaving Ukraine and joining Russia. Um, In uh, other Russian-speaking areas of the East and and South, um, it wasn't that people wanted to leave, but they certainly, you know, disapproved of attempts to Ukrainianize their culture and language and would have liked much more local autonomy, much more And, of course, remember um, that, uh, you know, the the 2014 revolution was against the democratically elected president who was elected Mm -hmm. with huge majorities in the east and south of the country. Well, now, of course, since, I mean, Russia has, in a way, repeated this mistake twice, first on a relatively small scale and then this year on a colossal scale. Uh, But, of course, what what Russia did um, by annexing Crimea, supporting rebellion in the Donbass, you know, backing the separatists in war, and then this year their full-scale invasion um, has undoubtedly been to drive a lot of people who previously sympathized with Russia um, into, you know, complete support for the Ukrainian state uh, against Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, But frankly, I mean, what... What the balance is in the territories occupied by Russia, we just don't know. I mean, as you've said quite rightly, we cannot, for a second, trust the results of these referenda. Um, but since it's impossible to do any serious research on the ground in these areas, and in any case, as you also said, since so much of the population is gone, what the you know what a majority of the population today really thinks, we we have no idea.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, so we we kind of fleshed out the kind of peace deal you think might have been doable uh, before the war. Uh, it, it certainly would have left uh, no more territory in Russian uh, and or separatist hands than there was before the war. Uh, right, in other words, uh, Crimea sure. and the separatists part held part of the Donbass. I assume you think that is no longer possible, right? I mean, any, any, any. I I cannot imagine Russia saying, "Okay, we'll withdraw troops." And it, it, you know, if you'll just give us this, this, this one thing, this, the main thing we were asking for about Ukraine and NATO, we will withdraw troops from all the territory they have gained at great cost. I would think that that's politically undoable for Putin. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. What do, What do you think?
0: Well, I mean, if if they annex these territories
1: yeah i uh, but leave that aside i mean, I mean assume magically peace uh, peace negotiations started tomorrow or they started before the referenda even i i i it just seems to me that um a long time ago we passed the day where we could realistically return to the status quo ante and get the peace deal we could have had before the war but, but I hope I'm wrong but what mm. do you think
0: on balance I think you're probably right i mean the uh and Certainly, I mean, Russia could not, you know, withdraw from the territories it's occupied without its own security guarantees. There would have to be a demilitarized zone because otherwise, the Russians would simply be afraid. You know, the Ukrainians would use this for, uh, as a springboard to resume the war. Um, and, I mean, if you know, if one went back to Russia's initial demands which are still there theoretically on the table, and the Ukrainian offer in March, which went some considerable distance towards meeting those, then in principle, (laughs) in a rational world, which we do not inhabit, um, there would be uh, Mm -hmm. a a possibility, I think, of of peace. and of course, the incentive on the Russian side is that they have, you know, they have lost so many men. Um, they have failed to gain their major objectives. They haven't even conquered the whole of the Donbass. Um, and they've suffered, you, you know, twice now, very serious defeats on on the ground. Well, you know. <laughs> Reality exists, Um, uh, uh, and it's clear from you know the the Russian responses that they have enormously scaled back their ambitions uh, in because of of these defeats. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, in in the end, if they think they're going to lose in the long run, uh, or are going to have to recruit so many people as to cause you know really deep unhappiness mm-hmm. at home uh, and face, you know, a future of prolonged economic decline, uh, then I certainly, well, I know Russians who would, you know, including establishment Russians who would be prepared to accept a compromise, uh, but I don't know, uh, you know, among people in 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 the Russian establishment, or indeed the great majority of ordinary Russians I know, I don't know anyone who would be prepared to accept surrender, which is now you know, the Ukrainian demand. In other words, give up Crimea, give up the Eastern Donbass, give oh, up no, everything.
1: That, that's, that seems to me crazy talk. And, and uh... yeah. well, but it is the
0: Ukrainian government which is saying it. And the Biden right. administration is, is saying peace talks are entirely a matter for the Ukrainians. Right. So I mean, it's crazy talk, but it is official talk. And and you know that's obviously what the you know what Putin has been listening to. Um, if 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 he moves to annexation, it will be because he has given up completely on the idea of, of peace talks. Um,
1: yeah. And then
0: you know we're uh, well at best. You know there's going to be a long, long slogging match. Uh, at worst, we escalate. You know towards potential nuclear cataclysm. Yeah. I mean, it's very strange, you know, Bob, uh, you know, we we both are, I suppose, of a certain age. I mean, we, we remember when the fear of nuclear war was a real thing.
1: I remember. Yeah, yeah.
0: and people, you know, and, and and people remembered how close we came in the, in the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, even if they didn't actually know just mm-hmm. how close, mm-hmm. just how close we came. Now you've got these people who basically shrug it off, saying, "Oh, you know, um, oh, it's all em- empty bluff. Um, Putin will blink. Putin's not serious." The same people will then say, "Oh, but we can't. There's no point in trying to negotiate with Putin because Putin's irrational. Putin's right. mad. So Putin is mad, but Putin will blink.
1: Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, there are a lot of ironies in <laughs> yeah. the American. Uh, Within the blob, there are ironies within the blob. Um, so uh, let's see. So the hope, I guess, at this point is that come Friday, Putin will say, I've decided to put off the decision on annexation. Let's, let's think about this, make sure we know what we're doing. That is a signal that he's open to negotiation. I mean, you know, conceivably, you can imagine, if I were writing the script for this, uh, the Biden administration might signal under the table between now and Friday. That if he did that, we'd be willing to talk in a way we haven't talked. Uh, I don't see signs of that happening. I I, I just I, I I've uh, I was never optimistic about kind of Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, but I've gotten only less optimistic. So I, I don't I don't see signs of that happening. Do you do you do you rule that out that that there's more going on under the table than we imagine from the American side, and and in any event, do you think there's much hope at all? Of this decision being delayed uh, on on Friday in a way that that leads to negotiation.
0: There's an old Russian saying that hope dies last. So you know I, I will go on hoping and mm-hmm. praying, frankly, until the last moment that um, these these two things will happen. But no, I'm not optimistic. Um, I mean the the um, the, the only art. Uh, hope oh, is that uh the alternatives look so
2: terrifying frankly
1: yeah i i i uh you know and it isn't just the nuclear thing it's just the capacity of wars to take unexpected directions and get bigger
0: you know <laughs> well i mean one thing and, and here this you know once again this accursed self-righteousness kicks in um you know, so many people in, in, in the West have been complaining bitterly because China has not given us full support against Russia. While, of course, meanwhile, the U.S. president does just about everything in his power to infuriate the Chinese and, um, you know, make clear that, uh, that they are next. Now, of course, I mean, there are good practical reasons for China not to support Russia. I mean, A, because they are afraid of of sanctions before they're ready for them, that they're trying to get ready. You know, they're not ready yet. Um, And of course, because they didn't approve the war, um, Russia didn't ask them, and Russia has failed. I mean, I think there's much respect for Russia left in Beijing. But on the other hand, uh, you know, especially after Biden's last remarks, given you know the tone of the uh, the American media and establishment, which the Chinese are perfectly capable of reading, um, but also the fact that if the Chinese become convinced that the American agenda, you know, is uh, not drastically to weaken Russia, um, to impose a total defeat on Russia, leading to a fall of the regime and uh, you know p- potentially the collapse of the Russian state. I mean, that would have really drastic implications for China. China would be largely isolated internationally. China's energy security would be very badly affected. And I think China would, would, would imagine that having done that, American hardliners would be enormously emboldened you know, against China if they mm-hmm. if you managed to finish off Russia in this way. So, I mean, the, it, and if, if the Chinese do decide to take the risk um, of sanctions, they are of course in a position massively to strengthen Russia, uh, both militarily. Not not with Chinese troops, they will never send Chinese, Chinese people to fight in Ukraine. But they can of course provide huge numbers of weapons.
1: Right.
0: I mean, two can play that game. <laughs> you know, we're running a proxy war in in, in Ukraine. The, the Chinese can do the same. Huge amounts of weapons and economic aid to Russia. Um, p- people see, seem enormously confident that that. Will never happen. I mean,
1: I, I have no idea why there's so not. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess uh we're not ending this in much better a mood than we started <laughs> in, Anatole. I'm not I I don't think uh, you know, motivational speaker is maybe your your career path. I'm I'm so I just don't uh, I just you know, I, I like to say I, I'm gonna have a, a new skip in my step after talking to you, but uh no. Um, well, you remember
0: old Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the
1: will. Okay, I'll think about that. Does that work? Does that formula work? Not really. No? <laughs> <best> we <have>. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> well, that was, that was intellectual pessimism you gave us there at the very, very end. Well, thank you, Anatole. Uh, people can uh, find you on Twitter, right? Uh, the names are reversed. It's Leven, what is it? At Leven underscore Anatole? Is that it? You don't know. Anyway. It, it, the name uh, anyway, is, they can find me. They there can or, find you. Everything is findable or, in the modern world. But but uh, but, but also,
0: um, of course, I have to advertise for my institute. If you go to uh, Quincy Inst, um, Quincy Institute, um, you can find all my pieces for for the Quincy. Right. There, along with lots of other brilliant stuff from the restraint point of view. Right. At Quincy Institute
1: and and responsible statecraft is uh, is kind of the media uh, the media. Uh, Arm of, of Quincy, I guess, uh, separate from the site itself, though. And you've got pieces there. So, and you got this piece in The Guardian uh, on If Putin Falls. And so we encourage people to read all that. Thanks so much for taking the time, Anatole. It was a pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much. Okay.